You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Naked Scientist. It's our time with Dr. Chris Smith. Every Monday, he devotes this half hour to answer your science-related questions. And always, thank you so much for bringing your curiosity to the show because it's so fascinating what we get to hear. Good afternoon, Chris. Yeah, and time flies, so get your questions in quick. Yes. Get in get in while the going's good. I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So I said, we're having fantastic weather, as, as I was just explaining a moment ago. So spring is here. Uh, I know you're in the last throes of your summer, but that's for another day. <laughs> that's for another day. We already <laughs> have questions, me. already have questions lined up. So let's get straight to them. And these ones have come in via voice note. So um, here's the first one. <laughs> okay, Abel was caught off guard on that one. Um, so he's ready now. Take a listen, Chris. Hello, Azania and Dr. Chris. I have a question regarding the sun. I just recently discovered that it has layers inside, or in terms of from our side, apparently the scientists use different levels of brightness to determine the layers or something like that. And so I was hoping Dr. Chris could elaborate or break it down actually what's really going on. Is it truly the case? Or maybe did I just misread some... All right. Thank you so much. I'm trying to try. <laughs> so, Chris, can you break it down? Uh, the sun is a star. It's our nearest star. And the universe is full of them. There's probably about 100 billion stars in each uh, of the galaxies. And there are something like 100 billion galaxies out there. So billions and billions of stars out across the universe. And they all come in different shapes and sizes. There are some big ones which burn lots of fuel very, very hot, very, very quickly and blow up and end their lives in a catastrophic supernova. There are much smaller stars that burn much more sedately. And there are some failed stars that never got lit in the first place. <laughs> so across that whole suite of uh, sort of manifestations of, of stars united under the common banner of stars, there is the common process also of fusion, nuclear fusion. The stars that you see shining and twinkling in the night sky are liberating energy by fusing light materials like hydrogen together to make heavier materials. And as they do so, they release some energy. That energy is photons of light, some of it invisible and wavelengths like ultraviolet that we can't see, infrared that we can't see but we feel, and then parts of the uh, visible spectrum that we can see as well. And you can look at the light that comes from a star, and the reason we know what's in a star, we know, for instance, what our sun is made of, because as the guy who invented the Bunsen burner, Robert Bunsen, discovered about 150 years ago, if you look at light coming from anything, written into that light pattern, is a signature of what chemicals made that light. Different chemicals make light of different colours, or they both absorb and emit light of different colours. So we can use that to work out the chemical compositions of things. So we can work out how much uh, hydrogen, how much helium, how much lithium, what's in a star. And so we can probe a star and work out what's, what its structure is and what it's making and effectively by looking at these different colours, how much of different things there are there relative to other things. And we can do that without even having to go there. And we can do that for stars which are nearby, but also stars that are very distant. And this enables us to work out what's inside a star. And then using the models of physics that we also have, where we understand the processes we think that are leading to the formation of these different chemicals inside stars, we, we can begin to work out what's happening where and at what rate because we can model the conditions that exist inside stars where at the centre there's you know, gravity and um, crushing stuff together with enormous force 
there's very high temperatures, which means the pressure pushing things together is incredibly high. We can model all of that and therefore come up with a, a structure or an envisaged structure for what's both in the sun in terms of its uh, physical arrangement, but also its chemical arrangement. Mm, okay. Uh, so keep those coming. Let's next go to Rod, who's given us a call on 011-883-0702. Rod is in Randburg. Hi, Rod. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Chris. Here's a question that, that um, is very topical. It's about, it's about the vaccination. Mm. Let's say hypothetically somebody is medically unable to take the jab for whatever reason, mm. but suddenly they need a blood transfusion and they get blood from a vaccinated person. What are the implications? Hi, Rod. The answer is that we are exploring this at the moment in a number of different countries and a number of different settings. And the technology you're referring to is called convalescent serum. Mm. And the rationale behind doing this is that if a person catches a disease and they successfully fight it off, then it will have left them with both cells, but also crucially antibodies in their blood, which will recognize and neutralize whatever it was they fought off. So if you collect the plasma from an individual who has fought off a disease, in this case we're talking about coronavirus, that plasma will be rich in antibody that can bind to and block the growth and spread of coronaviruses. If you infuse that plasma into another person, there is the possibility, if there's enough of that antibody there, that you could rein in the ability of coronavirus to cause disease in that person. The first insights we got that this could work actually came during the Spanish flu pandemic when people envisaged that there must be something in the blood of people who fought off the flu and that perhaps that would be present in greater amounts in people who recovered compared mm. to people who were potential victims or were becoming victims. So if they were to transplant the blood from a person who'd recovered into a person at risk or who was succumbing to the flu, it might help prop up their immune response. They didn't know why it would work because antibodies took a lot longer to discover, mm -hmm. but they did have some initial evidence that it did work. And so that's why we've been trying this with a number of diseases since. The results have been mixed and the results have been mixed probably because the kinds of people who tend to get trivial infections with coronavirus and recover uneventfully don't tend to make very high levels of antibody in the blood. So you don't get very high concentrations of antibody. And so when you infuse those into somebody who is at high risk from coronavirus, there's probably not enough antibody there really to make much of a difference. But if you do this from people who've been very unwell with coronavirus, who've got very high levels of antibody, it could work. But you can also do it artificially. And a number of products are now on the market. Drug companies, including AstraZeneca, have come up with laboratory-made cocktails of antibodies. They're called monoclonal antibodies. So these are highly targeted antibodies derived in a laboratory. And if you inject those at high concentration, you can neutralize the virus and you can make a big difference to a person's clinical outcome. When Donald Trump caught coronavirus, he was treated with one of these such treatments. And uh, they're, they're now beginning to enter various stages of clinical trials or receive approvals from regulators around the world. And mm. so that is another tool in our toolkit of ways to treat coronavirus. Right. Rod, there you go. Right. So that's Rod in Randburg. Next, we go to Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Hi. Afternoon. Afternoon. How are you doing? We're good. 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 Um, yes. Yeah, so the question for the naked scientist is, where do accents 
come from? How do they originate? How did the Australians get their accents? <laughs> New Zealanders, different ones. How did the, the people in England from Manchester to Liverpool to London get different accents and all the different dialects, if that's the right word? Yeah. Well, it's fascinating how you know, accents came about. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that, Adrian. My, my favourite accent is the South African accent, and I'm not just saying that. Really? I really like the, the I like I like the very specific. It's very clear and very easy to understand. Uh, which means if if you're a foreign speaker of a foreign language, because the enunciation of the language is very clearly and spoken, tends to be very very clearly pronounced all the words. It makes it very easy to follow. Mm. Uh, so I, I really like the South African accent. But there we are. My mm. other favourite accent. I love. Caribbeans, I, how they speak. Oh yes, I could. Li- they, they could just read me the weather forecast. <laughs> I wouldn't care. I just love listening to the way they pronounce. It. It's beautiful. It's yeah. so mellifluous. But um, the way this happened, and it's probably going to happen less in future, is because in the past we didn't have the internet, we didn't have telephone lines, we had isolated communities. We had people who went from one place to another, and they tended to hang out with other people in that particular part of the world, in that geography, whether that was a village whether it was a town, a city, or a whole country, you tended to get a concentration of people who were remote, isolated, and in a concentrated existence, but just with their fellow country folk. And there wasn't much admixture of different accents. So as a result, certain traits and characteristics will be concentrated in those populations. And and the same applies, actually, for things like genetics. It applies for behaviours, but it also applies to the thing we learn very much from each other, and that's how we speak. So you will find that because we are social creatures and we bond with each other by mimicking each other, we're empathic and sympathetic to each other, we, we mimic and engage with each other by copying and, and fitting in with each other's behaviours so that we form a strong society. The same goes for speech. Where do you learn speech from? Your parents, if they have a particular pattern of speech or certain words they use or certain ways of saying things, you will learn those too. So those traits become concentrated over time in a population. And if that population isn't very mobile and it's not mm-hmm. receiving changes or, or inputs of new ways that, that, will sh- that will shift that behavior from outside, then there will emerge from that a sort of pure culture of a, of a way in which you behave, which is that particular village or region or country's accent. And that's why. In this modern era, though, with the uh, proliferation of programming and content and Mm -hmm. accents on mass media, you will find actually that uh, accents are quite infectious and they do spread across geographical boundaries now. And so as a result, probably the likelihood of developing new accents is going to disappear. And it's not unusual to meet people from far-flung parts of the world. And, and you, you think, well, that's a weird accent. What, yeah. Why are they speaking with an American accent? <laughs> they don't come from America. And, and they say, well, I, I've, uh, I learned my English mm. from the television. Or you know, YouTube, I've, I've met increasingly. So many people. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. And the, te- the teacher or the teacher who teaches them studied, say, in the States mm. and had an American English kind of education and as a result tends to pronounce words in an American way so the, the, the students that they teach embrace those ways of saying things and so they end up speaking american english and nothing wrong with that but it's just very characteristic but that's an example of how these things sort of spread and proliferate because that's how humans behave we teach each other things we copy each other we make them those behaviors and those particular ways of speaking part of our way of expressing ourselves yes some we love and some we hate so once we get to one kind of common accent sometime far in the future please can it not be the american accent oh my god like (laughs) oh dear you've just alienated all our american listeners now but you, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, Adrian, I think it should be a British accent, shouldn't it? It should be an English accent, shouldn't it? The, no. Speak no. the Queen's English properly. No. It was funny. I went to I went to visit some friends in America who live in, in Maryland in in America on the East Coast. And uh, I sat down to dinner at their house and they got this little boy. He was, I think he was probably about five at the time, four at the time. Uh, and he listened to me quizzically for a while as I was chatting away to my friends. Mm. Uh, and he, because he'd never met me before. And um, and he just looked at me, and he was looking at me increasingly suspiciously. And in the end, he just just stared at me and said, "You talk funny." Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, it made me think. Actually, I, I think I talk perfectly normally, and that yes. they sound weird. Yes. But everyone sounds weird to everybody else, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Adrian, thank you for a fantastic question. Thanks. And which accent do you love? Which should it be one day, someday? English accent, uh, like Adrian. Which yeah, one? I, like, I do like an English, a well-spoken English accent. Always got there you go, see? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Adrian, thank you. A melting pot. It should be a melting pot. Influences from everywhere in the world. Then we'd really be united. Um, we've got Sean in Kingston. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm thinking of Sean Kingston. Isn't there a reggae artist called Sean Kingston? Hi, Sean. Hi, good afternoon, how are you? I'm good. Please blame the naked scientist. He's put the yeah. Caribbean into my head. <laughs> yeah, I have a very interesting question. Mm. Yeah, where is the end of space? If you keep on going, you keep on going, you pass all these galaxies. Where is the end? I mean, you know, you know, can you just explain where is the end of space if you keep on going? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Sean. The answer is that we can't even see the edge of the universe because the some parts of the universe are now off limits to us because the universe is growing faster than we can actually catch up with it. So if you were to start going off in a certain direction, then by the time you got to where the edge of the universe used to be, there'd be a whole lot more universe there by the time you got there. So you'd never actually get there because hmm. the universe is blowing up. And as it gets older, it blows up even faster. It's inflating like a big balloon. So at the moment, um, there, there isn't an edge that you could reach to the universe because it would have out, outstepped and outpaced you by the time that you got there. We don't know if that's going to carry on forever, though. We don't know if the universe will continue to inflate and inflate and spread things farther and farther apart indefinitely or whether there's some kind of cycle going on here where the Big Bang spawned the universe. It grew very fast, slowed down for a bit, then began to grow again and is growing and growing increasingly fast, will then stop and deflate and contract again although we don't think so, but that's a possibility at the moment. It's anyone's guess. Hmm. There you go. There's, hmm. there's no brick wall or fence at the end of it. It just keeps going. Yeah. Can I ask you know, the last question, please? Sure. A short one, Sean. Yeah, a very short one, yeah. You know, my son always asks me, you know, who created God? You said, you know, there is a God or... Okay, let's forget about the word God. The creator or whatever mm -hmm. created all these things, you know... Uh, how did that happen? I cannot even answer him. <laughs> mm -hmm. Join the club, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you, yeah. you find yourself thinking, well, we know that the universe began about 13.8 billion years ago because we can measure that. And, and some amazing space missions in recent years have actually made those determinations of very precise ages of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago. So at that point, the Big Bang took something which was infinitesimally small and very, very energetic 
And out of that spawned our universe and it blew up and inflated and grew incredibly quickly. It was incredibly hot and it grew and grew incredibly fast. Then it slowed down a bit and then it's been growing again ever since. And as it grows bigger, the faster it grows, the faster it goes. It's just inflating faster all the time. But if the universe is growing from that point, what's that point in? What's around the universe? Well, physicists will say, well, the universe is everything, so it's not inflating or growing into anything. But it's very hard to explain well, what, what was outside it or what contained it or where did it come from then? And similarly, if God made that happen, if that was the if that Big Bang was the moment of creation, well, well who created God then? Yeah. Is there a God for gods? Do gods worship gods? Who knows? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. And our brains just cannot grapple with this kind of thing because we live in a three-dimensional or four-dimensional environment with t- four, time is the fourth dimension. And we just cannot understand these very strange subtleties uh, about Mm. how it all works it's very abstract for our our mere mortal brains yeah it's a lot to wrap around our heads that's the thing when it comes to uh, all the space questions because i just think the scale that we're talking about is just so hard to fathom at least for me uh and thank you for all the wonderful words today (laughs) mellifluous was one of them oh you like that one I, i love that word it's not it's one of those words that as well as meaning what it does, which is, you know, pleasant to listen to and a soothing, pleasant experience, it also sounds like what it means, doesn't it? It's, yes. it's onomatopoeic, that word, isn't it? Yeah, pleasantly smooth and musical to hear. That's the meaning. Um, and yeah. then you just dropped another one now that I didn't quite hear properly, infinitesimally small. Well, uh, infinite means Infinities. goes on forever. Okay. And in- infinitesimally small means that you've got something which is very, very tiny because it's to many, many decimal points of smallness, mm. but ill-defined because it's you can always divide it by 10 again and you get something 10 times smaller. Ooh, yes, and smaller. So we just talked about a grand scale. Now we're talking about an infinitesimally small, small, small scale, uh, the two opposite ends. Thank you so much, Chris. It always, You're this, welcome. These sessions All always right. open our minds. That is The Naked Scientist back with us next Monday. 